Amen. Thank you, choir. You know, Aaron's so careful about these songs that he picks that just preach the sermon text so beautifully. It is a, a special day to be here uh, on Lil's 20th uh, work anniversary, 20 years, much longer as a member of this church, though. How many years as a member of this church, Lil? Since 72. Wow. Who's known Lil the longest? Yes, I think Marcy. How long have you known Lil? Ever since she was born. And her cousin, I mean, I guess, and her sister would be pretty close there, Esther. And it's great to have Betsy with us as well, and brother-in-law. And how many grandchildren now? We got all these kids here. Five of them here, and the, the two oldest are in Alabama. Excellent. And I didn't know that all three of Lil's daughters were going to be here today. And I got to, to be there in the the fireside room when she came around the corner and saw them. And uh, she didn't know either that they were going to be here. What a beautiful surprise and what a sweet moment uh, that was. Lil has been an incredible part of our staff, not, not only faithful to answer phones and let people in the door or keep people from entering the door, uh, which she's done a few times as well, but also as a, just a, a pastoral heart who loves our senior adults and loves our members so well too. And you may not know, she loves our teenagers very well uh, she, on Fridays, will often wear uh, hoodies and, and shirts from youth trips that she's been on. And she, she loves uh, God's people and she loves God's church. So it's an honor to, to serve with you, Lil, and we're so grateful uh, for you. And, and we do have one more surprise. But before we do that, let's talk about some, some good news. Actually, it's the best news. It's the gospel news. Uh, the choir just sang it. The Lord is our salvation. We forget that. We need that reminder because we, we look to other things to save us. We think if I get this job, I'll be saved. We think if I marry this person, I'll be saved. We think if our kids don't flunk out of school, then we'll be saved. If I can only uh, achieve this thing, then I'll be saved. We make idols, that's what that's called, is idolatry, into our salvation, and they end up failing us time and time again. So it's good to remember that the Lord is our salvation. That's a message that we need to hear over and over again. I'm, I'm thankful for the faithful preaching of so many who've taught me that over and over, the same story that I need to hear, the gospel story. One of those heroes of the faith is Fred Johnson. Fred Johnson was a pastor at Grace Baptist Church on the north side of town uh, for a long time, and he died a couple years ago, but his widow, Patsy Johnson, is here with us today, and I just, uh, we're so grateful for your husband and for his legacy. Can we give Patsy a hand, and thank you for all you've done over the years. Patsy lives at the Cumberland uh, at Brookdale uh, down here in Green Hills, and what an honor it is to, to have you with us here today, and we're so thankful for your husband's legacy. All right, today we're going to dive into chapter 15, like Aaron said, of uh, you've already heard the message of chapter 15 in song, but it's absolutely one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. We're going to take three weeks to walk through it and just savor that, that message of hope that Kyle so eloquently prayed about, that message of hope that comes from knowing the gospel. In a world full of hardship, in a world full of sadness, we could use some real hope, Right? Kyle prayed for those who are going to experience those tough times this week. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me at all, Blake. I'm used to it. I got little kids, so it's, this is a family of faith here. It doesn't bother me whatsoever. Little Farah. I hadn't met Farah, I don't think, so it's good to, to see Farah here today, part of the, the Cook clan over here. I think a lot of Christians 
have forgotten what hope is. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's easy to lose sight of what true gospel hope is all about. Real hope is, is not that maybe my team will win. This is the beginning of football season. I've already heard UT fans saying, this is our year. <laughs> right. Real hope is, is <laughs> real hope is not that my political party is going to win. Real hope is not that I'm going to win the lottery. Real hope is not that my kids are going to be successful. Many Christians think that real hope is just that one glad morning when this life is over that I'll fly away. That the Lord is my salvation only means that when I die, I'll go to heaven. Even that is not real hope. If all we can look forward to is escaping this fallen world someday, then what are we doing here? What are we doing with our lives? What does it matter? Is the good news of the gospel just that we can go to heaven when we die? No, there's so much more to it. And chapter 15 is going to explain to us the depth and the richness of all the implications of the good news of what God's done for us through Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that God gives us life, abundant life, life to the fullest now and forever. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you enter in immediately to the abundant life that Jesus came to bring you. And we're not going to have that kind of life unless we, we confront honestly all the, the, the ancient enemy of the, the, that we face, all of us, which is death. We have to look death in the eye. We have to understand that death is, is not a fashionable thing to talk about these days. It's not something you talk about at a party. It's a real downer, right? But it's important to look it honestly in the face. I've talked with Lil about this. What used to be kept very public, death, you know, they used to march bodies through the streets of the town. They still do it in New Orleans, right? What used to be very public is now very private. We whisper about death in hushed tones, we try to soften death's impact by saying things like passed away instead of died. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Death is terrible. If you want to say passed away, that's fine. We try to ignore grief. We try to suppress grief because it feels too overwhelming if we confront it head on. But honesty is important if we're going to live truthfully. I was talking with Liel this week, who's leading our, our grief share group. And if you feel like you need to confront your grief, you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to do it alone. Come tonight, four o'clock, and meet with our grief share group, and you can do it in the safe comfort of Christian people who love you and respect you. We, she was saying this week that, you know, we live in a, a what is world, not a what if world. We have to be honest about what is, not what if, and think about all the hypotheticals that could have happened or that might happen. We have to deal with reality. And it's very important to live truthfully in reality. Ancient Christians used to use the phrase memento mori to remind one another of the reality of death. You know what it means, memento mori? Remember, you will die. Remember, you will die. I worked with teenagers for 12 years, and let me tell you, they drive as if they will never die, right? They text and drive because they think they're the exception and they can't possibly die. Tragedy reminds us that they can. We distract ourselves 
with the fleeting pleasures of this world because we don't want to think about the fact that one day, as, as the book of James tells us, the fact that our lives are but a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes tomorrow. We need to live wisely by understanding the brevity of life and have an eternal perspective of life. Remember my friend Fran Shaka, who I love, he always says this phrase, this is America, you're free to believe whatever you want. Go ahead, believe whatever you want. You know, it's, it's fine for you to believe whatever you want until you die. Then all that matters is what's true. When you die, all that matters is what's true. The Bible tells us in the, the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Every, every philosophy, every culture war, there's nothing new under the sun. We've been through this before at some point. I'm amazed as we read through 1 Corinthians how similar our own culture is today to the culture in first century Corinth. The ESV study Bible notes on chapter 15 start like this. Many people in the ancient Greco-Roman world believed that death extinguished life completely or led to a permanent but shadowy and insubstantial existence in the underworld. The concept of a physical embodied existence after death was known mainly from popular fables and was thought laughable by the educated. It's very similar today, isn't it? Most of, of my friends who are not believers believe that death simply extinguishes life and there's nothing but blackness and void after death. I, I read a blog post last week by Scott McKnight, theologian in Chicago, who was quoting George Orwell, you know, the, the, the British author who wrote 1984 and Animal Farm. And, he said, people can foresee the future only when it coincides with their own wishes. And the most grossly obvious facts can be ignored when they are unwelcome. I think that's very true. People can foresee the future only when it coincides with their own wishes. And the most grossly obvious facts can be ignored when they are unwelcome. McKnight says, you know, it's a confirmation bias we have a, a, a confirmation bias when we uh, you know, have a future that we think is what is right and what should happen. Let me try out a theory here, okay? Stay with me. If people don't think about the afterlife or life after death, if they don't think about that at all, could it be that they're biased towards this earthly life? They can only see myopically into what is immediate. They don't have the eternal perspective. People tend to believe that this life is all there is because they want to live their lives as if this life is all there is. But the Bible tells a very different story. It tells a story that we know deep in our bones because again, as Ecclesiastes tell us, tells us, God has hidden eternity in our hearts. We were made for something deeper. And God's made a way for us to be regenerated into this new reality. Then we can find that new kind of life, an eternal life, an abundant life now and forever. I love how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, regenerated into a living hope. And, and here's the key, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
It changes everything. That's what chapter 15 is all about. God has forged a way for you and me to be made new from the inside out. Sin and death no longer have the last word. They no longer have chains on us. We are free. That's what this chapter is all about, the hope that Kyle prayed about, the hope that comes from knowing that the Lord is our salvation, from knowing that our Lord did not stay dead, that our enemy did not defeat him, but he conquered death and rose up in victory and in glory. It's the exclamation point. The resurrection is the exclamation point on the good news. It's vitally important. So we're going to get into the, the whole resurrection of Jesus and how it changes everything for us. But before we do that, we're going to hear a more basic explanation of the gospel, which is our foundation from which we will start this morning. So let's stand in honor of God's word as I read our text for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me, was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, saying this is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God, that's kind of a liturgical thing they do in Anglican churches and in some Methodist Presbyterian churches, but it's a practice I picked up at Beeson Divinity School where Lil's grandson is going to be starting uh, his first year of seminary at Beeson Divinity School. I'm so excited for him in a couple weeks. Uh, that's a beautiful practice that I learned at a very important place to me. We have some friends who bought a house in a neighborhood. I won't say which one. I don't want to disparage any neighborhoods, okay? But this neighborhood is south of here, and it was built uh, about the late 60s, early 70s. And, and the, the kind of running joke in that neighborhood is, when are you going to have to fix your house? Because everything is kind of at that age now where it's kind of falling apart. And we had some friends who bought a beautiful home in that neighborhood, and sure enough, they... Uh, they noticed their floor was sagging in certain places. And what happens when your floor sags? Your walls start to crack. Uh, they started seeing cracks in their ceiling. And they figured this is going to be expensive, but we need to do something. So they called a foundation company. And sure enough, their foundation was rotting and falling apart. They had to bring these joists in that they, they jacked up. And they had to leave these permanent joists under the house and the crawl space to support the whole house because the entire thing 
was on the verge of collapsing, which is not good when you have young children and puppies like they do. So uh, it's very important that you get the foundation right because everything else in the structure depends on that foundation. Some of you are home builders here, and I know you know this better than me, but the foundation is the most important part of the house. Without it, everything falls apart. You know that everyone has some kind of foundation from which they are living their lives. If you're you know, talking with somebody, you can drill down deep enough eventually to find out what their basis, what their baseline truth is from which they are living. You can figure out which truth claim they are choosing to believe is right and that leads to flourishing, that leads to the good life of, of sorts. I love how Rick Warren puts it. We're all betting our lives on something. There's no indisputable video evidence of Jesus, of heaven, right? But neither is there video evidence of any other truth claim as being the right one. So what we do is we either take a leap of faith or we take a leap of doubt, but it's a leap either way. We're all forced to choose. Are we going to put our faith in one of these truth claims or are we gonna doubt all these truth claims? Either way, you're taking a leap. And we're all living by faith then, in one sense. Because that leap, we're not sure if we're gonna land right. We're not sure if we're gonna be safe when we land. We're not sure if we're gonna be right. No one has it all figured out. For me, I'm betting it all on the gospel. I'm betting it all on what God has shown us throughout space and throughout time and through his word and through his people about who he is and what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. I'm betting it all that the gospel is right, that the gospel is good, that the gospel is true, that the gospel is life-giving. Those things are really important to me. And what we're gonna see here in chapter 15 is this encouragement that the Christian faith is indeed a firm foundation, a firm foundation from which to live. Before we get into all the good news about victory over death and uh, all, the, all the stuff about uh, Jesus' resurrection, we need to make sure that the foundation of our faith is solid. So our outline for today is called a firm foundation, the basis of our hope. Remember that when the Apostle Paul writes this letter, he's, he's trying to help this young church that's got all kinds of problems. He's trying to help them grow healthy and, and to thrive and to, to play their part in what God wants to do in Corinth and in Greece and in, in the entire uh, Greco-Roman world. His heart is to see this church that he planted become this strong community of Jesus followers who are actively following Jesus as Lord together. And all the little issues that Paul has been addressing, you know, like head coverings or uh, worship services, the divisions that were over snobbery and, and the Lord's Supper and all these things, they're all symptoms of a bigger problem. The gospel itself was not elevated in their church to a position of glory and a position of prominence where everyone saw the gospel as beautiful and treasured it. When churches understand how amazing the good news of Jesus really is, they begin to form a gospel culture in that church that addresses 
all these other side issues that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. Ray Ortland, he's a, a pastor in town. I think he's retired now. But he says the gospel is defined as this. The gospel is the biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving. The gospel is the biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving. Gospel culture, he says, is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. The corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships. Then he says these like Gen Z terms, in the vibe, in the feel, in the tone, in the values, in the priorities, in the aroma. We got some weird smells in this old church, man. In the aroma, in the honesty, in the freedom, in the gentleness, in the humility, in the cheerfulness. Indeed, in the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. That's what we long to see at Woodmont, a gospel culture. I think we have that in a lot of ways, but we can always, of course, encourage that more and more. So our first point on our outline is that if we're going to get our foundation right, we must stand on the gospel. If we're going to have that kind of gospel culture, we must be firmly rooted in the gospel. Look at verses one and two again. I remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is tying together everything he's been saying up until this point in this letter by majoring on the majors. That's a little cook phrase. She always says, major on the majors. That's what he's doing here. The core of the Christian faith is this good news of what God has done for us and for the world in Jesus Christ. We stand on this doctrine because it is powerful enough to save us from our sins and to transform us from the inside out. When we stand on this doctrine, it doesn't mean that we just, you know, intellectually agree with it. Yeah, I believe that's right. I believe that's true. Anthony Thistleton, New Testament scholar, says that standing on the gospel is more like nailing one's colors to the mast as a self-involving here I stand. It's lashing your, your you know, remember these, these old ship uh, captains would lash their, their selves to the mast and say, I'm going down with the ship. I'm going wherever this ship goes. It's another way of saying I'm betting it all on the gospel. He says it's like nailing your colors to that mast and saying, this is where I stand. This is where my heart is. This is where my life is. I'm betting my life on this. When we make our public profession of faith, when we tell the church and the world, I'm, I'm betting it all on Jesus, and then we follow Christ through baptism and church membership, it's an outward sign that we've nailed our colors to the mast of the gospel. And what is the content of the gospel? Paul wants us to make sure we know what he's talking about. We use all these church words like gospel. People don't know what we mean. We have to be clear about what we're talking about. Look at verses three through seven. When we put articles of belief into a concise form, we have historically called that, don't freak out, we call that a creed. Okay, Baptists historically have hated creeds. They say, no creed but the Bible. Our Church of Christ friends say the same thing. We don't like creeds. 
We don't like being told what to believe. I get that. I don't like being told to believe either. And the Bible is indeed a creed. But instead of saying to someone, here's what we believe, why don't we nail down some of the key things in a statement of belief like we have on our website. Our staff has carefully prayed through the key doctrines of the scriptures and listed a statement of faith on our website. I suggest you go read it. If you're a member, you probably don't look at the website very often. That's okay. But go look at our statement of faith and see if you agree with it. We put scriptures with every doctrine in there. But this is what Paul's doing. In verses three through seven, he's giving us a creed. Most scholars think he's quoting from an early ancient Christian creed. It's point number two on our outline. We stand on an essential creed. We stand on the gospel listed as an essential creed. Creed comes from the, the Latin word credo, I believe. I believe these things. Paul gives us this fundamental bedrock gospel doctrine that must be understood and accepted before we can build a gospel culture in our church. Paul gives us four articles of belief, or this creed gives us four articles. Each one starts with hoti in Greek. It means that. It's like saying, I believe that A. I believe that B. I believe that C, similar to our creeds now. The first one is I believe that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You'll see on your outline these four points of, of what these uh, creedal doctrines are. The first point is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The cross is at the heart of the gospel. The Bible's clear. The Messiah came and died for our sins. We call this, this doctrine substitutionary atonement. Now, a lot of modern scholars have rejected substitutionary atonement because it doesn't sit well with them. But I don't see any way to be Christian and deny that Jesus died in our place, that Jesus died for our sins. It's consistent with the Old Testament passages about sin and, and, and death and uh, blood being the atonement. That's why it says, according to the scriptures, I, one such verse, Isaiah 53, 5, he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. This is written about, you know, 700 BC. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The entire Hebrew Bible points towards Jesus. Remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to two disciples on the way to Emmaus. He's like, hey, what you guys talking about? Remember that? And they're like, don't you know? There's been all this hubbub in Jerusalem. This guy came and said he was the Messiah, and they killed him. It was crazy. He's like, really? Wow, that sounds amazing. And then he's like, let me explain to you who I am and what really happened. And then he says in, in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Hebrew scriptures the things concerning himself. Substitutionary atonement is also consistent with what we know about reality. Someone has to pay the price. In economics, they say there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? God would not be a just and fair God if he just let things slide. Someone has to pay the price. 
The second article in this early creed is found in verse 4. We believe that Christ was buried. What does that mean? Why is that included in the creed? Because it means that Jesus really died. His lungs stopped expanding and contracting. His brain ceased to function. His soul passed through that transition from this life to the next. If he didn't really die, then what hope do we have over death? Third, we believe that Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The power of God working through the Holy Spirit brought Jesus back to life. Air filled his lungs again. Oxygen was sent through his circulatory system. Electricity began to fire once again in the dead synapses in his brain. This is the miracle that changed everything. It's what N.T. Wright refers to as the day the revolution began. I love that. Satan was dealt his death blow. Everything sad began to become untrue. Death began to work backwards. The resurrection is the confirmation of gospel hope. The resurrection seals the deals we're going to see over the next two weeks. Finally, this creed says in verse 5 that we believe that Christ appeared to public witnesses. Why is that important? Because it means Jesus was raised in bodily form. He physically appeared. He wasn't a ghost. You know, the, the early Gnostic Christians said, oh, he was just a spiritual ghost floating around. No, Thomas put his fingers in the nail holes. He understood that Jesus was physical. The disciples ate charred grilled fish for breakfast on the beach with Jesus sitting there eating with them. So what does standing on this creed mean for our daily lives? If we actually put our faith in the gospel and bet everything on Jesus, it changes us from the inside out. The last point on our outline is that we stand transformed by grace. Grace is such a great word, but again, it's one of those church words. What do we mean when we say grace? Grace is the undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor of God on us. Paul knows that of all people, he was unworthy of God's favor. He's not, this is not false humility here. He's serious. He's like, I am the least deserving person of God's grace because I persecuted Christians. I was adamant about putting them in jail and beating them up, trying to squash this whole Christianity thing. And now that same zeal that he used in persecuting the church, he now used in preaching to the church and planting the church. God's grace transformed Paul from a zealous persecutor to a zealous preacher. Verse 10, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Just because God's grace comes freely to us as a gift doesn't mean there's not work to do. Right? I read an article this week about some Christian cliches that we need to just get rid of. One of them was let go and let God. You may have said it. I've probably said it before. Let go and let God. The article said all too often this phrase is wielded as if the symbol of Christianity is not a cross but a couch. It's subtly used to put the brakes on striving, on working, on effort. Paul says here in verse 10 that he worked harder than any other apostle. 
So many Christians understand that they're saved from their sins, and now they just kind of want to put their feet up and kick back. But they don't understand that they're saved for a purpose. God wants to use you now in this life. God longs to get you off the sidelines and into the game. There's only one gospel, but it takes all of us playing our part in making it known and, and, and lifting it high. That's why Paul says in verse 11, whether it was me or them, we preach and so you believe. So what do we do with all this? Well, first off, isn't it wonderful that when, when storms of life come crashing in, and they will come crashing in, and a lot of you are just barely hanging on today. I get it. It's okay. Isn't it wonderful to be able to stand in those times especially on the never-changing gospel of Jesus Christ? Many of us were raised to think that our relationship with God was contingent upon our performance, upon our ability to be good, upon our, you know, Bible reading or prayer or church attendance or whatever. None of that is what makes us right with God. It's only the free gift of his grace. There's an old song from Cadman's Call that some of you who are my age probably remember. It's called Shifting Sand. It says, my faith is like shifting sand, changed by every wave. My faith is like shifting sand, so I'll stand on grace. Waters rose as my doubts reigned. My sandcastle faith that slipped away found myself standing on your grace. It'd been there all the time. It's powerful. Second, I long to see a gospel culture take root and really flourish here at Woodmont. That can't happen if we don't know the gospel, if we don't treasure the gospel, if we don't prioritize the gospel. We have to take our stand together on this creed of Jesus's atoning death and physical resurrection. I know that sounds basic, but it's really, really important. Once we've nailed our colors to this mass, then we go together where the gospel takes us. Finally, there's work to do. You're not simply saved so you can go to heaven when you die. We're not simply saved from our sins. We're not simply saved from hell. We're saved for a new life. We're saved for playing our part in God's mission. Can you imagine what God wants to do you do through you this year? Maybe you're starting school. Maybe you're, you're a teacher. Maybe you're starting a new job. How does God want to work through you this year in that position? All the ways that he longs to bring hope and healing to those who are in your circle of influence. Let's allow the grace of God to come in to flood our hearts and change us and change our focus off of our own petty desires into something far greater than ourselves, into God's own mission for the world and for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel hope that is assured because of your resurrection from the dead. God, we thank you that, that we no longer have to fear uh, death. We no longer have to worry about what death could do to us because for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, we believe that because of the gospel. God, may our feet find solid footing on the good news of what you've done for us. May we recommit ourselves. I know many of us were raised in church and we've heard all this before. 
Maybe it's time to replant our feet in that, that solid rock, that, that great foundation of who you are and what you've done. God, help us to believe, increase our faith in the gospel. Help us to see it as, as the most good news, the best news of all time as it is. And God, I pray that you would teach us to fall more in love with you as a result of changing our hearts from the inside out. And God, I pray that you would get us off the sidelines, get us into what you want to do through Woodmont and through our work and through our families and through our friendships and through our neighbors. God, I pray that you would help us to play our part faithfully as we put our shoulder to the plow that you have given to each one of us in the gospel work that we have before us. God, I pray for Woodmont Baptist Church that you would cultivate such a beautiful culture of, of gospel culture here among us, that we would learn how to treasure one another as beloved brothers and sisters more and more, that we would love to pour ourselves out in service and enjoy for you and for your body, the body of Christ known as the church. God, we do thank you on this special day for, for Lil and for her family and for her legacy here and for her parents' legacy, God, for the Neely family. God, we know that you have, as Kyle prayed earlier, there's so many saints who've gone before us and we're so grateful. May we now take their legacy and run with it as you would have us to. We pray all this in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.